You're listening to The World Is Just A Book Away podcast. I'm James Owens, founder and CEO of The World Is Just A Book Away, a nonprofit organization on a mission to promote literacy and education by developing libraries and programs in disadvantaged communities around the world. For more information about The World Is Just A Book Away, please visit www.wejaba.org. That's W-I-J-A-B-A dot org. My guest today on the World is Just a Book Away podcast is Shane Snow. Writer and human explorer, Shane Snow is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in prestigious publications, including The New Yorker, Fast Company, and Wired. He is also author of three books, including the number one business bestseller, Dream Teams. Shane, who has been called a wunderkind by the New York Times, has been in running for the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism. He is founder of the media technology company Contently, which has been ranked in the top 100 of Inc.'s 5000s list of America's fastest growing companies. In our conversation, Shane and I discuss the role reading and books have played throughout his life and in relation to his work. He also describes his unique creative process and the role intellectual humility plays in leadership and teamwork. I'm delighted to have Shane Snow with us today. Shane has been a writer for a number of years and is has received many accolades. Among them, Shane, you've been called a wunderkind by the New York Times, and your work has been referred to as insanely addicting by GQ. Shane founded uh, content... I, Shane, I'm going to start over because I just... <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> I just almost did... Con- Contently, the other one. Content, just content. Okay. Yes. I'm delighted to have with us today Shane Snow. Shane is a world-renowned writer. In fact, he's been referred to as a wunderkind by the New York Times and insanely addicting by GQ, his writing as being insanely addicting by GQ. He is a founder of Contently, which is which matches writers with people who have a need for their skills, and that has been acknowledged by Inc. as one of the fastest growing companies uh, in the country. And Shane is also the author of three books so far: Smart Cuts, Dream Teams, and The Storytelling Edge. And in addition to that, Shane's been busy in his personal life. Shane, you were recently you recently got married, and I want to congratulate you. Uh, thank you. I, I think that's the best one of all of these, including the insanely addicting. I'm <laughs> really happy about it. Well, that's uh, that's a, that's a good thing to say when you're newly married, Shane. If you if you <laughs> if if you viewed it otherwise, I think <laughs> might not be. Might not be might not be off to a good start. Yeah, no, if I'm like I, you know, I like that GQ thing better than my wedding. That's <laughs> concerning. <laughs> and uh, Shane, it's great to talk to you. And we, I think we last saw each other in New York. It's great to talk to you again. And I'm just 
really intrigued by your writing. I'm especially intrigued by the way you sort of the paradigm in which you view problems. And I want to get into that a little bit more about that later. Uh, in specific, I want to talk a little bit about dream teams because I think a lot of people or probably almost everyone has struggled with team and teamwork in their lives. And you present this in very interesting ways. Uh, well, sure. But, but to begin with, as you know, the world is just a book away podcast is about books and reading and the importance that they have in people's lives. Can you tell us briefly what, what importance reading played in your early life and what importance it plays now? I owe a lot of who I am and what I do and how moderately good I am at it to reading a ton of books as a kid. So my brother is a year and three months younger than me, and I am sure we were a huge handful for my parents, but my mom basically tricked us into reading hundreds of books. So when my brother and I were fighting, you know, we're age five, six, seven, my mom orchestrated this competition between us of who can read the most books each month. And this got us to shut up, but also, you know, we, we wanted to compete, but this was a very quiet way for us to compete. And whoever read the most books every month got to go to pizza with my mom. And I, I think she ended up doing something with the other one, whoever didn't read the most books every time too. She was a great mom. But as a result, I read thousands of books by the time I was 10 years old. And that I attribute I attribute to that why I love writing, why I wanted to be a writer. I think a lot of my vocabulary from a young age was developed because I read so many books. And, you know, a lot of them were kids' books, but I read The Lord of the Rings when I was seven years old. And, you know, that puts you in a bit of a different class, I think, among seven-year-olds in terms of vocabulary and and weirdness, nerdiness. So I owe a lot of uh, of the way that I I learned to think to reading books. And today, you know, I actually just put together on my my website an updated list and and a bunch of reviews of books that are important to me. And uh, and I realized as I was going through my bookshelf and my Kindle and just my journals, uh, going through books that that had mattered a lot to me in all these different categories, it was I was a little overwhelmed with how many books there were. But I I, the one that made me the happiest was the category that I, I just put on my website of books that changed my life. And it was cool to see that two of the five, I believe it's five that are on that list, were in the last year and a half. And, uh, you know, and and one was a long time ago. And and to me, that says that I'm still growing and, and learning. And that's encouraging because, I don't know, I worry, I guess, that I, I will stop growing at a certain point but books i think are a really good tool for me to uh to grow and to make sure that i i remember that i'm on track and, and still developing as a person i i i find it interesting shane i think this this sort of concept of or worrying about things that might happen is a pretty universal theme yeah. but i i want to jump in and say that we've probably known each other for about a year and a half two years and in my experience with you, the way when you're struck with an idea, you pull out your journal and start to take notes. I I think that you probably don't have to worry so much about growing. You see, <laughs> you seem to have pretty insatiable intellectual curiosity. 
Uh, well, thanks. You know, every once in a while, I'll go through these old notebooks and uh, digitize them just so I don't lose them and so there's not piles of them everywhere. And I get depressed sometimes when I realize going through these notebooks for, you know, the first or second time, when I realize I've forgotten half the things that I've, that struck me so hard. So at least I do have a process for that. But I, I do see myself as a very curious person and that makes, it makes me happy. And, and do you, do you, how do I want to phrase this? Do you see a reflection of that? Because I, I've noticed, I think the last time we met, it was in New York and we were in a coffee shop and we were talking about some things and you started taking notes on some of the things we were talking about. And I notice in your, in dream teams, which I have in front of me, that you take concepts that I wouldn't normally correlate with each other quite frequently. And you come up with this very interesting way, what I mentioned before, this paradigm, this very interesting way of looking at things. Do you think that's, uh, do you think that's aided by your process, what you, what you do, the way you take notes? Absolutely. And I've just started really fully realizing that what I'm doing, what I've been up to as I've done this. I, I took this little, it's like a game or sort of a quiz by, uh, that's created by SY Partners, which is founded by uh, Steve Jobs' old CEO coach, and he coaches Oprah now, Keith Yamashita, one of the most incredible mentor-type people that I've I've had in my life. And and maybe a year or two ago, he, uh, he sat me down and had me play this little card game that uh, helps you identify sort of your hidden strengths. Um, he calls it the superpowers game. And what came out of this little exercise was that I am a systems thinker. And that resonated really strongly with me when I, I went through this and identified it because systems thinkers are all about exploring lots of territory, trying to zoom in, zoom out, understand lots of things and see how they're connected. And I think that's that's basically my thinking process. And, and it's what I do in my writing and and I like thinking of myself that way because it gives me even more of an excuse to do what I love doing, which is be curious about lots of things. And maybe this does go back to reading all of these books. You know, you run out of books when you know when you've read three hundred books in a summer. You run out of things to read, so you'll just read anything you know to try and and beat your stupid little brother. And uh, and so I. I find that I'm curious about a lot of things, but now I, I do think that I give myself more of an excuse or more permission to explore things that aren't really on the nose with what I'm working on because time and time again, I find that I can import ideas or analogies or insights from one area into another area, and that helps me to add more meaning or more understanding to things. And I think that's really what I, I've tended to do throughout my writing career. Now I'm much more deliberate at it. Is uh, is try to to help explain the world in ways that that people understand, but but explain the world in a different way to change the way you think. And it's kind of the definition of creativity, really, is connecting things that haven't been connected before. And uh, and so that is sort of a, a theme in my process, and and that's why I love taking notes about things, even if they're they're not exactly what I'm working on. And I have a on my phone, I have a to do list of things to look up. And it's it's full of uh, a very random topics, and and that's on purpose. Mm. And and Shane, I want to uh, I want to say for our listeners, I want to encourage them to go to shanesnow.com to learn more about you. I didn't mention that initially. And also, when you go to shanesnow.com, we can look at your 
some of the things you're referencing, such as your top book recommendations. And I want to I want to say how honored I am that you included The World is Just a Book Away in your top book recommendations. Well, it's very well deserved. Thank you. Uh, to to go to go back a bit before we go more into dream teams, can you think of a particular book that stood out from your childhood as inspiring you? From my childhood, uh, the ones that always come to mind from my childhood are silly, like Cookie Monster and the Cookie Tree. Although I really loved that book, <laughs> Cookie Monster has to fight a witch so that he can get the cookies on the cookie tree, and he learns like uh, some moral lesson, like the witch isn't so bad. You shouldn't judge people. That that book stands out still. Um, I I loved The Hobbit when I first read it because it was kind of the step function, uh, more interesting and and more difficult of a read that I I read when I was a kid. I ended up getting into also crime novels like Tom Clancy type of stuff when I was in early middle school, like sixth grade, and those had a big impact on me. I think. I uh, I don't know. I, I got into that because of Sherlock Holmes, which was by far my favorite. I loved the you know the problem solving and and the the mystery busting and and the surprises and the twists and turns. And I, I think that got me into some of this stuff that's a little bit more adult than I probably should have been reading. But I I loved them, and I also loved being able to talk to my dad about you know the Tom Clancy book I was reading. I I found that that was a cool way for me to connect with. Uh, you know, with, with him, um, as a kid. And, and I, I do think that our relationship, uh, developed in a pretty cool way because we talked about books. And I think it's interesting that you highlight things like Sherlock Holmes and Tom Clancy, the sort of the detective spy nature of life and the way you, the way you go about exploring your own curiosity that is then linked to your writing. Yeah. You know, it's just in, saying that to you now, I'm kind of making the connection that I take a bit of an investigative journalism approach to much of my writing. And some of that is from my training from journalism school. But even if I'm writing about business, I, uh, I do take a more investigative tack. And, you know, with this exploring stuff we've been talking about, that has to go back to my love of Sherlock Holmes uh, in some way. I mean, which one's causation and which one's correlation. I don't know, but I started reading Sherlock Holmes when I was still in elementary school. So there's definitely something there. And you mentioned that the, the five books that I, I believe you said five books that have shaped your, have changed your life. And you said that, uh, how, how many of those were in the last year and a half, one or two, at least two, two. Yeah. Can, can you tell us about one of them? Yeah. Uh, this is, is my current book that I recommend more than any other book. It's called A Book About Love, and it's by a, uh, a guy in L.A. named Jonah Lehrer, who is a, a neuroscience writer, and he was uh, one of the, the kind of the top young writers in his generation. He was writing for The New Yorker. He had a column there. He'd written cover stories for Wired Magazine. He had several, I think it was either three or four best-selling books. Um, by the time he was you know, 32 or 33, people were really jealous of him. And he, he ended up getting uh, in this scandal, uh, a plagiarism scandal that was his fault. He did something wrong. Um, and, uh, and people picked apart his work and kind of found everything, every mistake he'd ever made. And his career went down in flames. And, 
And then he tried to make a comeback and it was too soon and he kind of wasn't very mature about it. And then he spent some time and, uh, and years later he wrote this book called a book about love, which is about love and forgiveness. And it wasn't really his comeback book in the sense that, uh, you know, he didn't really come back. He doesn't have the career that he, he had, even though I think he deserves to be given a second chance. But this book, you can tell, was very therapeutic for him to write to. Basically, he takes this science approach like he usually did to understand the different types of love and, and how love cannot be explained by science in many cases. But, uh, you know, love between parents and children uh, in sort of regular sort of traditional romantic relationships, love and spirituality and God and loving yourself and being able to forgive others and forgive yourself. And uh, and you can see in this book his struggle and his journey in learning to love himself after he, you know, committed these journalistic uh, sins and then his reflection on on himself as a father and and, and all of that. But then all these amazing stories and and science and uh, you know and and kind of mystery about love, but reading that book for me changed my relationship with uh, with love and and with the people who I love in my life, and I think it is one of the most underrated books of all time. And so I I've bought it for you know twenty people at this point and and I recommend it a lot, and I think you know his personal story is really interesting, but the the book itself even if you don't know his personal story is so inspiring and heartwarming. And, you know, if, if my wife and I ever have kids, I'm going to reread the book again because it uh, it has all of this great stuff about, you know, attachment theory and, you know, the the things that matter uh, and the things that don't matter in terms of uh, of helping kids to know that uh, that they're loved and and all that. So that's, that's the book I recommend the most, a book about love. You know, I actually just uh, pulled up my list. I have eight books that changed my life, I guess more than a, more than I remembered, and, and Sherlock Holmes is, of course, on that list as well. Great, and I've now added a book about love to mine. I'm going to I'm going to order it today. I look forward to reading it. Uh, I just want to touch briefly, Shane, on what you're reading now, and then, in the interest of time, I want to be able to capture some of your thoughts about dream teams. What are you What are you reading right now that you would recommend to people? I. Um, and I'm, I'm reading a, a handful of books, but I just finished uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, which uh, I, I, I put it on my, my list of books immediately. And uh, I, I like it because it's, it's this story that everyone knows who Genghis Khan is, but not a lot of people know actually what he did. And he gets confused with Attila the Hun. And uh, he was one of the most innovative people in history. And he did a lot of horrible things. He did a lot of really fascinating things and a lot of really good things, too. He's a very complicated uh, person in history. Uh, but uh, a lot of how economics is set up in Europe and Asia actually comes from him and what he did. He changed the paradigm on a whole lot of things uh, in terms of social structure and economic structure and trade. And... Uh, and it reminded me a lot of uh, of the great Cleopatra biography, Cleopatra, A Life, which is sort of similar. This character, everyone knows who Cleopatra is, but we have these ideas about her. You read her actual life story. She was a game changer in so many ways in Egypt and in Rome. 
and a lot of the way that we think in modern times, we can trace back to some of the things that she did that were very different than those around her. So those are the, that's kind of the kick I'm on is these books of, of characters in history that change the way the world sees things, um, be they nefarious or, or more noble. And I, I look forward to reading that, too. And I'm, I've been fascinated by him. I don't know if you've read the series by Khan Igledon uh, about about Genghis Khan. but um, I haven't. Yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend it's fiction, but it's it's really riveting. Yeah, cool. I want to transition into dream teams. And because we're talking about reading, I'm, I'm currently on page 239 of your book. And and it's uh, oxytocin, a love story. And <laughs> and it's about how many books do you read per month? And the other axis is average intellectual humility score. Could you please talk a little bit about that? Sure. So intellectual humility is kind of the capstone concept of this book about teams that work well together and make breakthroughs. And the basic idea is intellectual humility is a virtue that sits somewhere between being so stubborn, you never change your mind, but you're seen as strong. And on the other end of the spectrum, being so gullible, you'll change your mind at any sort of gust of wind. Uh, but often that's not why. So intellectual humility is having the wisdom to be in the middle of that, to know when you should change your mind about something in light of new information and when you should hold true. And it, it breaks down into a few things, having respect for other viewpoints, being able to detach your ego and your identity from uh, ideas and from your intellect, not being overconfident about what you know. And, uh, and so as I explore that concept in a couple of these chapters, I, uh, I also lay out a little bit of research that I did. I've actually followed up on this research with a much bigger study that concludes several of the same things, but did a big research study on intellectual humility and, uh, and had people take this uh, academic test for self-assessing your intellectual humility. And then I asked a bunch of lifestyle questions. And one thing that I, I had a suspicion about was that, uh, that certain types of reading would lead to, uh, to people having more respect for other viewpoints, people being more willing to change their mind. And, uh, and in, in this particular chapter of Dream Teams, I, I show that there is a correlation between reading more books and having more intellectual humility. And actually, the, the bigger study that I just conducted this year goes a little further. It, talks about, it shows, basically, that fiction is incredibly powerful for, uh, for building respect for other viewpoints, which is interesting because, you know, reading about wizards doesn't necessarily uh, seem like it would be relevant to real life, but... Uh, but my theory about this research is that if you can put yourself in the shoes of someone who's not like you, whether they're you know, a fictional character or not, then, and learn their story, then, uh, then your brain trains itself a little more to, uh, to think that, hey, there might be more than one right way to live. There might be more than one right way to think or to speak. And, uh, and one of the other things out of this, this more recent study I found is that, uh, that people are much more willing to admit they've changed their minds because of a book versus a news article. And, uh, and, and my theory on that is that, uh, that because of the investment it takes to read a book and because of the, uh, I guess the cachet that books still have, uh, in our society, that it's easier to, uh, it, it's more of a face-saving thing to, to say, well, I read this book and so I changed my mind versus I read this thing on the internet, so I changed my mind where, you know, people have a million arguments against you and the internet is, eh, is hardly trustworthy at this point. 
Um, but uh, but all of this reinforces the idea that uh, that reading and uh, and taking that journey that you go on in, inside of a good book helps you to be a little more open minded. And and you make uh, I I just. I, I, you have so many charts in this book and I really, really encourage people to read Shane's work. And, uh, and right now I'm focusing on dream, dream teams in particular. You also have a, a very interesting chart about the percentage of Mer- Americans in favor of gay rights and the number of recurring gay characters on television shows, particularly since, uh, Ellen came out and, and it's really extraordinary to, to see these two things and that the acceptance rate is at, it looks like over 60% now. And in, uh, in the 1970s, it was at something like 30%. And I, I just want to highlight for people that this book is full of interesting correlations. And, and whenever I, whenever you have an opportunity to hear Shane talk, for example, when, when you were talking about the, reduction in shootings when female policemen and male policemen are teamed together. I just, I find all of that fascinating and I wish we had time to go into more, but since we do have limited time, I want to ask you what in studying teams and in all the research you did for this particular book, dream teams, what are your one or two main takeaways about some things people can do to help make teams more effective. So the animating principle of dream teams is that two heads are only better than one if they see things differently. If two heads see things the same, they're going to be as good as whichever head is smarter. But for that pair or a group of people to be smarter than any of its members, they have to combine different ways of, of thinking, different perspectives, uh, different ways of seeing the world. So what it does is it, and, and there's a whole lot of, of science and, and actual mathematical models uh, behind how this actually works, but it gives us a very pragmatic excuse to do something that I think is also a very good moral choice, which is include people in our lives, in our problem-solving processes, in our thinking processes, who are different than us, including our rivals, our critics, someone who really has a different point of view than you can help push your thinking, whether they persuade you to their point of view or not, they can help you to expand your own, you know, push your own envelope. And, uh, and even the presence of someone who, you know, thinks different than you will cause you to think a little bit more critically. So that's one of the, the conclusions in the, the cop studies is that if you are a police partnership and you kind of assume that both of you think the same way, you will use a little less critical thinking when you're solving problems. And uh, and what happens when male co- male officers are paired with female officers is they can't make that assumption on every on every level, and so they communicate more. They uh, they end up taking more time to deliberate in the decisions they make, and they end up shooting fewer people for the wrong reason end up you know, negotiating a lot more rather than kicking doors down. And uh, the same thing goes actually for old cops and rookies and all sorts of other combinations. Uh, but that would be the main takeaway is that we often lean away from the discomfort that comes from different viewpoints. But if instead we lean in, that's the way that we get smarter. And it's, you know, it's a, a simple thing, but there's so much good that can come from it. 
And if you invite those differences into your life, they're less painful. So asking someone who disagrees with you to tell you what problems they see in your argument or whatever it is, is a lot less painful than someone just showing up and telling you, uh, you know, your business is wrong. So uh, that, that would be my main takeaway or my main bit of advice. And what a powerful, what a powerful concept to think about in an age when people are self-selecting the news they're receiving that validates their, their opinions and not really seeking out when we see such polarization in the country and fewer people seeking out to even listen to the opposing point of view. That's a, yeah. that's a really powerful statement. Yeah, and it, it's troubling, the, the state of things. But I do think that if we withheld our judgment a little bit and explored a little bit more rather than tried to win arguments, we would all get a little bit smarter. And that's a, that's a powerful note to begin ending on. I would like to ask you one final question, Shane. Is there any other, anything else, any other nugget of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? The thing I always say when someone asks me a question like this is the thing that my dad always said growing up. He said that people are more important than stuff. I think that that is a really powerful guiding principle. There's so many things in life that seem to matter, um, but when things break or things go wrong, something costs money that you wish you didn't have to pay, keeping in mind that people are more important is... Uh, it's a really nice way to keep your relationships intact through this messy journey of life. And, and I think it even has to do a little bit with that, that point about uh, different viewpoints, that if the person is more important than winning or you know taking first place or whatever it is, then we'll be a little kinder to each other and we'll have happier lives. Amen to that. And Shane, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's great to, it's great to connect with you always and fascinating to have an opportunity to talk to you. I want to encourage our listeners again to visit shanesnow.com to learn more about Shane and his work and the workings of his mind. And Shane, thank you so much. And I, I look forward to talking soon. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you.